Marcus here with you as always, and today is Tuesday, September 23rd, and we are live in Denver with another special guest on the phone today, and Charlie is a good friend of mine going years back who has seen another area of the financial world. He was actually duking it out on the trading floors of Bear Stearns and Actually, a pretty fascinating story of what happened while he was there when Bear Stearns was imploding back in, wow, 2008. Was that really six years ago already? Hard to imagine, but anyway, Charlie, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me, Chris? Yes, I can, sir. How uh, how are you doing today? I'm okay. Glad to be on your program. I'm excited. Nice, nice. Well, it's... It's it's funny thinking back about how this last crisis was really that, that it's actually six years have gone by since then and you know obviously everyone remembers when Lehman Brothers failed and things went seemingly completely to hell then until Uncle Ben stepped in and printed away all the troubles but again as you certainly remember and I always thought was. Uh, Kind of like the warning was when Bear Stearns collapsed earlier in, uh, I guess it was actually March of 2008. Am I, is that the right month there? That's correct. First domino to fall. Yeah, although even that wasn't coming out of left field because you had problem with problems with those hedge funds. Uh, I guess it was almost back in July of 2007. So anyways... June and July of 2007 is when those funds imploded, if I remember correctly. Wow. Well, anyways, why don't uh, just give us a little bit of a background of how you ended up in the middle of this whole <laughs> whole debacle, and uh, and you know, ever since we, I guess it was back 2004, 2005, when we were down at Wharton together, and why don't you just fill everybody in on uh, how you ended up at Bear and and Take it from well, there. All right. Well, stepping back a second, uh, should I uh, enlighten your audience as to how we became friends? Sure. Okay. So I, uh, my freshman year of college, I went to Duke, which was a horrible mistake for a bunch of reasons. Uh, so then I ended up transferring to Penn or Wharton. And uh, as a transfer student at Wharton, they automatically assigned you uh, an MBA mentor. Uh, I was an undergrad at Wharton, and uh, so I got Chris Marcus. Lucky me, of course. <laughs> and uh, and I don't recall ever having asked for an MBA mentor. They just sort of gave me one. And uh, and if I recall correctly, Chris signed up to be an MBA mentor for an undergrad because he thought that that was going to give him an entree into the world of undergraduate girls. So, of course, I was uh, uh, uniquely qualified to show him the ropes that way. Uh, right. I'm being slightly sarcastic. And uh, so, anyways, we became friends. We realized that we had a lot in common. Uh, you know, we would go out a bunch. Um, and uh, so then, fast forward to, you know, and I, I, just like everyone in Wharton, I was looking to work in finance, mainly because, you know, I hadn't carefully considered my options of the future, and uh, I just assumed that everyone in finance, you know, made a lot of money, and yeah. I wanted to make a lot of money, <laughs> so I started doing that, 
and uh, I applied for internships my junior year, and I got a job at Bear Stearns, uh, and they just sort of threw me in mortgages, uh, not because I had any interest in mortgages or knew anything about mortgages. I had never had a mortgage, obviously, and I still right. have yet to ever actually have a mortgage. Uh, but, fortunately. Yeah, right, right, right. And that's just sort of uh, where I wound up. And I did the internship, and then they offered me a full-time job. And my senior year, I didn't want to have to look for a job, so I just took it. And, uh, and that's, that's how my journey into mortgage-backed securities began. And uh, so that's, that's that background. Um, should I keep going? Do you have subsequent questions for me? or? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not not really a complete surprise that they stuck you in mortgages, I'm guessing, because certainly around that time, which uh, you graduated in 2005, right? Uh, 2006. Okay, so, oh, so you were there an extra year, which was, again, right as the mania was still building, and... It reminds me of when uh, when I was at Moody's in 2001, where I was fresh out of Rutgers undergrad, and I didn't even know what a CDO was or a mortgage-backed deal, but every <laughs> everybody was doing them. Everyone was talking about mortgages. I remember the there was a group on the eighth floor, which were the guys that rated the CDOs, and everybody wanted to be in the group that rated the CDOs, and so I, I can't even imagine... Well, I can't imagine how much that demand increased by 2006. So once they uh, determined that by the fact that you had two arms, two legs, and were willing to listen to angry bankers, you know, that that qualified you to be a mortgage man, how uh, – can you give us a little perspective on just what – like what did you do every day and what, what was it like <laughs> inside there and and I guess for – a lot of people who wonder whether the bubble could have been predicted. I mean, did it seem like people knew what was going on? Uh, no, no one knew what the fuck was going on. <laughs> it was just, I mean, not that I could tell. Basically, I was what's known as a mortgage finance analyst, okay. which meant that uh, I got all of the data for the, mortgage, for the pools of mortgages that we would buy. And some of the pools we would buy directly from originators. Some of them we would originate on our own. Uh, and uh, I was in charge of cleaning up the data and then, you know, sort of managing the various traders, you know, positions data-wise. Uh, and then when we would actually go to sell the mortgages and the, you know, securitization pools, I would work with uh, the accountants um, and the traders and uh, the, you know, the... Um, the rating agencies like Moody's to, you know, rate T these Talking things. about your all-time fun groups of people, accountants, rating agencies, and angry traders. Oh, gives no, me, and, gives and, me and, shivers and, just and, thinking and, about and it. associates at law firms that were, you know, right. in, the, in this game too. So that was that was sort of the, the deal. Um, it was extremely long hours. The, uh, the technology we, we were using was, you know, straight out of the 80s. You know, it hadn't been touched <laughs> since then. Uh and, uh, you know, it was just a lot of these, like, you know, multimillionaire traders calling you and uh, constantly and, you know, asking you for, for their quote-unquote shit and, uh, and then following up every minute until they had their quote-unquote shit. And, 
you know, I specifically was in charge of uh, the second lean position. Uh, I did. Uh, I worked for the the head subprime trader, um, okay. and I also did some uh, some Fannie and Freddie deliveries. So you know, I oh, uh, wow. I was doing the best of the best, you could say. So, and and actually, that reminds me uh, a bit of now. I I only had my one summer with a bank at Merrill in in two thousand four. But I remember also sitting with the guy who traded the Fannie and, and Freddie, and I don't think I was aware of the word subprime back then, but <clears throat> what I thought was interesting from what I saw inside of the banks was that everyone just seemed, at least from the, the day-to-day level, that it just seemed like it was, you know, normal function. Like, I didn't, I never got the feeling of someone was clear of really that it was a bubble that was completely insane and about to collapse. Was that kind of the same take you had? Yeah, no one thought that this, you know, game was going to collapse. The general consensus was that um, the worst that it could ever be was that, you know, housing would flatline, I guess, and that, you know, this would just keep going on and on. And it was just sort of like accepted that, you know, securitization was, you know, this you know, great finance innovation and that we were, uh, I don't know, providing homeowners with liquidity or something like that. I forget what the ultimate justification for it all was. Well, they technically uh, were just, (laughs) you know, a little bit too much liquidity, but. Right, right, right. Um, And, uh, you know, it was just like a giant machine and uh, I was a cog in the wheel, you know, when people ask me, you know, what did you know, or what were you doing? I sort of give the same excuse as the Nazis of the Nuremberg trial. I was just following orders, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I mean, the job itself was miserable. Um, but, uh, I just sort of assumed that all, you know, entry level jobs in finance were, and, you know, I was hoping to, you know, become a trader myself and, you know, make the big bucks. Um, and, uh, you know, that obviously never happened. The market collapsed. Uh, I, I mean, do you want to go to that now? or? or? Yeah, why don't, uh, why don't you kind of fill me back in now where, if you were in that same role and when, when it started to seem as if things were not your normal job where something unusual was happening, whether that was right. when the funds blew up or... No, it was before that. It was, uh, the shit started to hit the fan in February of 2007. Okay. Uh, and, I, rem- um, I, I do remember that. It was in, uh, February, because there was, like, a couple, couple of days where there was some subprime scare, but then everyone forgot about it for a while, right? Right. What happened was, uh, I forget. I think it was HSBC, but it could have been someone else who, you know, wrote down their subprime position by a couple billion dollars one day. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, what had actually happened was, uh, one of the biggest subprime lenders, uh, I believe it was new century. Uh, they had closed their end of year, you know, at the like end of January, 2007. And, uh, <laughs> You know, they had had way more delinquencies than, you know, anyone had expected. And so that, you know, sort of resulted in a a ripple effect throughout the whole, you know, subprime uh, slash mortgage uh, bond trading industry. And 
So one day, you know, there was big news that, you know, uh oh, subprime might be screwed. And then there was this big conference call with uh, uh, our our head uh, our head of research at Bear. His name was Gian Sinha. And basically, it was a, a call that he did with, you know, basically every hedge fund and every one in the whole universe where he basically just explained that, you know, the the dip in the market was like random and, you know, it had fallen too much. And, you know, it's time to I think his exact words were it's time to buy buy the index, which, you know, anyone who listened to him obviously lost a lot of money. Uh, and so that was sort of the first sort of. uh uh, murmur, I guess, that, that things weren't all right with uh, with what we were doing uh, right. from a financial perspective. And then, uh, and you know, Charlie, was, seemed, was your yeah. feel at that point that, again, that he legitimately felt that it was a good time to buy and that's what he was supporting with his own trades and positions? Or Well, I, Gion wasn't <laughs> actually a trader. He was just a research guy. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, what was he actually thinking? I mean, I have no idea. You'd have to ask him. Uh, but, uh, that's, that's my recollection of events. And then, so, you know, and things pretty much settled down a little bit in March. And then in April, uh, you know, we started seeing a lot of, uh, delinquencies on our mortgages. We, and especially we started seeing, uh, that people weren't paying their first month uh, of their mortgage. And, you know, if you take out a mortgage and you don't make the first damn payment, then then things must really be fucked. So that started happening in, like, April or so. But then it was just sort of like, uh, you know, my – I mean, you know, the whole time I was at this job, I was just, like, high on Adderall every day. So my memory is a little bit, you know, screwed up from that period. But – then, uh, so eight, April, uh, it started, you know, going down again. And, uh, but really it was June, uh, like sort of mid slash beginning of June when, uh, the shit really hit the fan because those, uh, those hedge funds that Bear Stearns was running, they started, uh, imploding majorly. Right. Um, and, uh, pretty much, you know, my job sort of like, you know, I'd been working like a hundred hours a week from, you know, July 06 until like June 07. And then basically June and July 07, it's like all of our business just dried up. And then we were just sort of twiddling our thumbs all day from then until when I left there, you know, I, and I ended up getting a new job, like, you know, two weeks after bear collapsed, I didn't stay for the, uh, transition to the JP Morgan purchase. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's sort of what happened in a nutshell. So at at what point did uh, I mean was it really just that last week because the collapse of Bear was actually rather quick I mean did you obviously things weren't good now they hadn't been good for a couple of months but I'm curious uh, you know on the inside you know did it did everything really just fall unravel very quickly in that last week or did you feel the handwriting was on the wall. Uh, well, I remember that, you know, uh, for 2007, you know, the Bears stock kept dropping a lot. And, uh, you know, my bosses who were, you know, basically partners at Bear, 
you know, they weren't too happy because a lot of their net worth was tied up in that and their, you know, net worth was dropping precipitously. Uh, but Which indicating on some level that, again, perhaps unwisely, but that they did legitimately believe on some level that the trades they were making and business they were running was profitable and it wasn't which which i think is important because a lot of people often think that everyone was in on the fact that let's sell the mortgages and we know people can't pay them back and someone else will get stuck with the cost of that which i think was a very important element of what happened although again what you're describing matches what i saw the brief time i had at merrill where at least on the regular level of the people that were working there day to day, maybe not the major stockholders, but I think that most of the employees were, you know, quantitative guys from schools like Penn or MIT that, you know, thought they were analyzing something. It it turns out we're analyzing it quite poorly, but, um, well, I do remember specifically that some of my bosses, you know, would run around going, who doesn't pay their mortgage? I mean, who would do that? You know, and, and you know, so they definitely weren't, you know, seeing the forest through the trees either. Right. You know, I, uh, uh, you know, like at the very top of the pyramid were a couple guys and I didn't really have one-on-one access to them. So I don't know what, you know, Scott Eichel, Mike Nuremberg, et cetera, were thinking, but, uh, uh, most of the people, they just thought, you know, it was sort of business as usual and that things were going to get back to normal. I mean, after 2007, you know, the stock had dropped because, you know, Bear's earnings went down a lot because, you know, a huge chunk of Bear's business was in this, you know, mortgage secure mortgage securitization game, you know, and when that business dried up, that was one of Bear's biggest units. You know, they didn't have a big investment banking arm. You know, they weren't big on equities. Uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, a, mostly a mortgage bond shop uh, from what yeah, I can tell. Yeah. And actually, we, we've talked a little about this before, but I'd be curious, any, uh, anything, any access or insight you had regarding their silver trading operation, because that's something I've studied quite a bit, is how the silver and the gold market for that matter, but in particular, the silver market has been heavily manipulated for quite some time. Actually, it apparently goes back a couple decades, but at one point, it's believed that Bear Stearns was... Uh, holding a very large naked short silver position that also contributed to their their demise or just overall problems and be curious if you again if you had ever heard or if that rings any of that rings a bell in any way uh the first time i'd ever heard about that i mean i i'd heard of you know the silver market being rigged i think it was the the hunt brothers who you know had some sort of scandal in the 80s Right, nineteen eighty, it went to $49. Something like that. But, uh, no, I first heard that from you, Chris. Uh, my impression was that Bear went under uh, because a lot of the, the you know, a, another one of Bear's biggest, big, Bear's biggest businesses, yeah, try saying that ten times fast, yeah. was uh, 
in prime brokerage, which was basically just, you know, um, being a, like a bank account for hedge funds. And right. <laughs> the hedge funds, they started to pull their money out in, at like the end of February 2008. And These guys were also long for- mortgages as well. What? And a lot of the, most of the hedge funds were owning a lot of these same mortgage positions as well, which added to the pressure. Right, right, right. I remember when, you know, every, at the end of the month, when we would, you know, go, quote unquote, out the market with these securitizations, I would get all these investor requests, which was basically formatting all the data for their, you know, uh, for the, the hedge funds, um, you know, and put it into, you know, um, whatever spreadsheet formats they wanted. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there were tons of funds that were buying this stuff. And, uh, but I was under the impression, and this could be wrong, because I really, you know, I was on the inside of the mortgage operation, but, you know, what was actually happening at the bank overall, I had no clue. But uh, I was under the impression that what caused the demise of Bear Stearns was these hedge funds pulling out their money, you know, as quickly as possible. Uh, and it became sort of a classic run the bank, you know. Right. Yeah, that was the impression that I had from the outside as well. And again, just always interesting to think about. Who knows what goes on at the top levels? And and that that's what I find so fascinating now. Where seeing essentially a run on the bank on a firm level, which is to me analogous to what we're seeing on a you know, from a currency level where, you know, now the Fed is just printing so much paper that, you know, again, at some point, where does it all stop? And, you know, it's, it seems and even the, uh, the reaction by most of the people on wall street seems very reminiscent where it, you know, seemingly logical and in plain sight yet I imagine, uh, you know, if you were going around in 2006 or 2007 warning about housing problems, nobody wanted to hear it. And anyways, here we have, uh, you know, exactly. I mentioned to you before uh, about how I just got out here in Denver. And I mean, there's, there's a massive real estate bubble brewing out here. I wonder why. I guess the combination of a couple hundred uh, yeah, yeah. What, billion what, what, dollars what and, and legal marijuana. Yeah, well, that it's again. That's what you know. I would say if the, if I could leave behind one investing tip to the planet, I mean, if you really wanted to know how to make a lot of money uh, in the investment world, it's really just understand where the legal policy change and combine that by being aware of when money is being printed or less commonly retracted that which never seems to happen but you know you saw you had the printed money uh following the dot-com bubble collapse in september 11th and and you still had the legal code in place where you had those tax breaks if you owned a house so you had a lot of money flow into mortgages once they shut down some of the mortgages back in uh 2008 2009 then they started, you know, the money started being diverted to the auto loan sector. I mean, because wherever you create an ARB, wherever you change the code, 
And then on a macro level, when you have so much printed money coming in, it's naturally forms a bubble. And I would expect at some point, I would expect at some point that marijuana will become a bubble as well, at least in terms of the pricing. Um, but anyway, it's, again, just fascinating to see really looking back on what you went through a couple of years back and then seeing how things have built up again now. What, what's your take on on what what happens going forward? Do you feel the economy is recovering? Just seems like a massive money-fueled bubble to you, or what's, what's your take at this point? Uh, well, I have sort of a weird view of the economy and economics in general. Okay. Uh, you know, everyone says that, you know, perfect economy is 100% employment, but I disagree. I, I mean, who wants to work? Uh, to me, it's, you know, a perfect economy is 100% unemployment. Uh, you know, but uh, so I, I have, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm necessarily qualified to make an economic forecast, but, uh, you know, the United States doesn't really produce anything. Uh, you know, we have a tech sector and an entertainment sector, and those seem to be our major uh uh exports to the world but you know tech and you know silicon valley stuff and you know movies that's not enough to employ you know 300 million people so you know i don't i mean it just seems like most of the country is you know hooked on meth and uh uh you know all the uh these small towns in America have just sort of like rotted out because there's no more manufacturing base anymore. So, uh, but again, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, huddled up in my little Brooklyn bubble and, you know, I don't see what's really going on out there, but, uh, my general impression <laughs> is that, you know, um, Sa sounds like a New Yorker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, so how's the U.S. economy doing? I mean, you know, the stock market is up, though I don't think that really, you know, trickles down into the pockets of most people. Um, I think, you know, the United States is a great place if you're rich. Uh, if you're not rich, it's probably not a great place. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not an economist. I have a undergraduate degree in economics, which means nothing. Uh, and um, well, that, that's, yeah. that's it's interesting you mentioned that because I, <clears throat> I, I I've not been the uh, biggest admirer of my Wharton. Well, I went for the MBA program while you were there for the undergrad, obviously, and I almost felt like the whole thing was was kind of like a, a Wall Street minor league or, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly Chris hit 30 home runs in economics. Let's bring him up to a trading post. Is, was that pretty much – and when you mentioned that, and I think that's funny that you mentioned how you had an economics degree yet we knew nothing about economics. Um, was that, that your impression of the experience as well? Yes. Yeah, I mean – you know, I didn't even take that many economics courses, and uh, my degree is in economics, and uh, I think that's just something that Wharton does formally for their undergrads. Uh, my specific concentration was in finance, um, 
And, uh, I mean, you're right. It was basically, you know, everyone at Wharton, either most of them did finance Wall Street jobs and, uh, you know, some people did consulting. And that was pretty much uh, that. It was just sort of a, a factory of, you know, sort of indeterminate sheep who wanted to make money. And those were sort of like the two funnels, it seemed like. You know, very few people actually went to work for, you know, real companies. Um you know, there were a couple of people that went into marketing and stuff like that, but the vast majority of people were finance, and then there were some consulting people, and that's pretty much uh, that's at least how it worked back then. I mean, if I had to guess, there's probably way more people now who are you know going into you know tech jobs and stuff like that because that's you know seems to be where where more money is at. Um, so if someone you know, asked you if they should get their MBA or if they should go back to school or. Or if they should go to college in general, based on your experience about a decade later now, looking back, what, what would you say? I'd say no to all of that. I'd say find something you want to do as early as possible in your life and spend all of your time doing that and drop out of school as soon as you can. And uh, um, if, uh, if some company refuses to hire you because you didn't graduate from high school, then you probably don't want to work for that company anyways. Beautifully put, my friend. Well, Charlie Meal, I want to thank you for joining us on the Welcome Show. It's actually Mel, but okay. <laughs> Well, I guess I never said your last thank, name. Thank you, my much, friend, but... from over a decade for remembering how to pronounce my last name. Charlie Mel, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> thank you for joining us today on the show. And uh, Hold it's... on, Chris. Before we uh, break, do we want to uh, tell your audience a funny story about uh, – uh, what happened at Smokes one night with your German friend, or do we want to leave that for off the air? We we can leave that one for next time. And he, <laughs> okay. and he was Bulgarian, <laughs> and I was just trying to keep the peace. So, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, the only time I've ever been kicked, the only time I've ever been forcibly removed from a bar was with Chris. Yes, yes. That's <laughs> Anyway, Charlie, Mel, my friend, good to hear from you, and thanks for sharing your insight into Bear Stearns and what it's like inside of Wall Street. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon, my friend. All right. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Bye.